But this idea that we have set facial expressions has caught on in many ways too much because mm. there's a lot of software based on it now, like facial scanning. You know, you see a lot in internet stuff, like get a camera on, they can read your facial expression and tailor adverts to what you like because you can read your feelings from your face. But you can't. I mean, humans struggle to do that. Our algorithm is meant to do it accurately, is anyone's guess, but it keeps happening. And it's influencing stuff like security software and, uh, you know, like um, checks like that, which is worrying. This is Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. Today, we're sharing my conversation with neuroscientist and author, Dr. Dean Burnett. We're talking about his new book, Emotional Ignorance, about the science of emotions. I'll let him tell the story of why it's called that and not emotional intelligence. It's a rich conversation touching the deeply personal, but also what emotions reveal about cognition and how societies across time have viewed them. And we talk about some curiosities, too, such as the emotional realm of dreams and the difficulty in defining what an emotion, something that seems so central to the human experience, even is. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Dean. No problem at all. Always happy to. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk about your book. Um, the first place I want to go is let's just talk about how the book came to be. So in the introduction, you relate that the book was meant to be called Emotional Intelligence, uh, mm -hmm. but Emotional Ignorance seemed a more apt title. Why was this? Yes. Um, <laughs> it became more and more apt as my attempts to write uh, Emotional Intelligence uh, uh progressed uh, in the looser sense of the world word in the looser sense of the word um, floundered is probably a better way of putting it mm -hmm. it was i mean the genesis of the book was quite uh, light-hearted and quite um quite sort of breezy because uh, <clears throat> my previous efforts uh, before this book uh, before i agreed to write this book uh, the idiot brain and the happy brain were quite um you know sort of light and fun uh it seemed to be my thing uh, to write and when I wrote the the Happy Brain, and uh, like one of the reactions I got a lot from that one was, "You wrote about happiness. Why not write about uh, one of the other emotions?" Um, which I I don't think was meant as an insult, but technically was because there's basically people saying, "You wrote this book. Why don't you write a different book?" Because oh, thank you very much. <laughs> that was, it, not quite that easy, but um, obviously I, I I picked up on the fact that there was an obviously an interest in the general readership of for learning more about emotions. So I thought, well, why don't I just cover them all you know, in one book, just explore the different things we know about emotions in the brain. Because at this point, I was, uh, I had been led to believe that the science behind emotions, uh, or the science underlying emotions, was relatively well understood, as far as anything the brain can be, and quite established. So I sort of uh, agreed to do this, my publishers, signed a contract, and then I started writing it, and I realized that was not the case. It was actually far more baffling, far more complex, far more confusing, far more uncertain, far more hotly debated. And I very quickly ended up in over my head. Hmm. Uh, the reason I wanted to call it most intelligence, because I thought, well, you know, that's, that's a phrase people use, a phrase people have. And if I do a book all about how emotions work, people who read it will be, will be more emotionally intelligent. And also as a sort of play on words of, you know, it's about the science of emotion. Science is intelligent stuff, yeah? See? See? Emotional intelligence. And I was very pleased with myself that day. Um, and again, as I started writing it, I realized, oh, no, no, I, I, I don't know this. In fact, no one knows a lot about what, how this works and what they do and how fundamental and powerful and you know, far-reaching their influence is. And yeah, see, as I keep, you know, as I progress, I realize I'm actually quite ignorant about emotions. But to the point where I thought, I'm not sure I can write this. I don't have, you know, any particular core point I want to get across. I don't have any uh, you know, mutual you know, 
bedrock of understanding. So I was you know, almost prepared to throw in the towel. And then um, pandemic happened, uh, lockdown happened. And at first I was very uh, confident that I would, I would be okay because I was quite well set up for it. I have uh, a job which involves working from home, have for like four years now, um, have my own outside office. Uh, this is a time when people wanted uh, psychological insights about what we were going through and that's generally my thing like i'm the brain guy i tell you how this affects you and stuff so i looked like i was going to be good, good cool you know it's going to be good for me um as far as the lockdown is good for anyone but uh yeah but then very early on the pandemic my my father contracted covid uh, very long and um months later he passed away from it and this was at the, the, the very in the UK at the very height of uh, the most maximum strongest lockdown you couldn't go anywhere couldn't see anyone so i had to I, I couldn't be there for my father in his last days. Um, I had to hear about his condition second and third hand via updates over the phone from desperately frantic medical staff who could only stay like two or three minutes. And, uh, and yeah, and when he passed, I, I couldn't say goodbye to him properly. I had to say goodbye to him over the, over the phone on a WhatsApp call mm. as a, uh, like a, uh, emergency room uh, sorry an intensive care doctor was holding up the phone to his ear uh, when he was on a ventilator unconscious and yeah, and they're also doing the whole grieving process. Um, it uh, it was horrible because none of the usual uh, avenues for processing your grief, like you know, people helping you out and coming around and trying to comfort you and taking responsibilities off you, you know, doing some cooking for you, you know, the usual things of getting together with people and mutually condoling, expressing condolences. None of that was possible. I was stuck at home with my wife and two small children who needed me because there was a very, very scary time for them. Just lost their grandfather. Uh, you know, they lost access to all their friends, their school. And I had to quote unquote, step up and suppress largely suppress what I was going through for the sake of my family. Mm. And, you know, I ended up with a head full of very turbulent, powerful, unpleasant emotions uh, at the same time as having little, nothing else to do and a contract to write a book about emotions. And, um, that's where this whole thing came from, really. So it's basically part grief journal, part exploration. And I, uh, I figured, well, seeing as I've got nothing else to do now, I'll use my uh, neuroscientific training because um, it was still a little bit of my head, like, despite everything else, constantly analyzing. Okay, so you, you need to write about emotions. You've got a lot now. You should, why don't you use these to, uh, to express yourself, you know, and lack in any other avenue. I wrote about what I was going through and dissected as much as I could. And, um, and that is the book we're discussing, I guess. So, yes, I was very, very emotionally ignorant and mm. this helped me uh, get over that or at least you know resolve that and i hope anyone else who reads it can feel the same yes yeah that that's an incredible amount to bear um during the pandemic mm. and <laughs> just a bit yes it, it is <laughs> yes and and it comes through in the book that you were wrestling with many of the emotions that were coming up and and how <laughs> how this time was just yeah was it was such a strange time and such a hard time and um yeah mm. i appreciate you you sharing that with readers i think it will resonate with other people me included as as i would um experience the death of my dad this past year yeah mm. um so one of the things that you said one of the things that you noted is that uh emotions aren't necessarily that straightforward as a concept um mm. can you can you tell me about the struggle that researchers have had in defining what emotions even are yeah, I mean, it's one of those things I, uh, only in recent years, I started hearing about the study of emotions uh, as an actual science, mm. because uh, I've been a neuroscientist for like 
close to 20 years now, undergraduate university period as well, more than. And they don't really, uh, or they didn't at least, come up very often. Like neuroscientists seem to focus on the you know the proper scientific stuff, like your memories, your cognition, uh, sensory stuff, uh, you know, body motor control, things like that. Um, so you know, it's a lot of the uh, perhaps uh, more tangible things are what uh, what lead to be the focus. So emotions are almost. I don't want to say afterthought, but they were the sort of background noise of a lot of news having research. So, again, that's part of what led to me thinking that they were uh, kind of resolved, like old school, like when we've done that, let's move on to the more more complex stuff. So I thought, you know, just general vibe I got that they were quite simple and um, well understood. As it turns out, uh, they're sort of more ignored or like overlooked because they are so complex. So... Um, uh, sort of challenging to get your head round, but it's almost like an elephant in the room thing. Like you can't ignore them; they're omnipresent. They're very much there. It's like a, you know, it's like a uh, sort of cognitive appendix, which you know, just occasionally bursts and causes problems. It's they're a big facet of everything. And um, yeah, so like, so like, I guess I assumed, uh, like, I had assumed based on like my own experiences that the you know, emotions research was a relatively new arrival. Like people started looking, mm-hmm. well, let's look at these things, but. Turns out it's in many ways one of the oldest of sciences. I mean, start of the book talks about uh, the Stoics in ancient Greece who sort of identified emotions as actual physical things, um, in that they have a physical, physiological presence in our body. Because when we have an emotion, we react in physical ways, and therefore, because they have a tangible presence in the real world, they are definite things that exist, and so on. And how you did know. the Stoics uh, envision emotions? What did they think that those? were i'm curious how the thought what people have thought emotions have has changed over the years well it's it's a strange thing about the stoics like they identified emotions as tangible things but uh in many ways they were like the 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 prototype vulcans and they thought emotions uh were sort of to be suppressed or ignored or sort of progress beyond uh if you achieve a state where your emotions do not affect your thinking because they're not rational they're not objective then you are in the highest possible state a human can be the state of uh, i think it was apathy um which means oh, for the stoics that was you know, the the height uh, of human thinking you, you couldn't get beyond that whereas you know over time and many years uh, apathy is now a different thing to go from the ultimate expression of human consciousness to can't be bothered is quite a drop in terms of prestige but uh, you know, that's language for you um, but yeah, so like they, they recognize so passions and um, uh, feelings and uh, uh, things which affect us, but should be uh, overruled or counteracted. And they they seem to be the origins of the things like, you know, sex is only for marriage. It shouldn't be any sort of emotion-fueled interaction beyond the ultimately practical, which obviously was adopted by a lot of the early Judeo-Christian churches and sects and it be- it become it's become a thing now so we can thank them for that mm. <laughs> in many other ways but um but yeah but they, at least they recognize them as tangible things but because obviously the ancient greece civilization came to an end and a lot of the folks and emotions ended up being incorporated into religious thinking that made it less and less scientific because obviously then you start invoking spiritual and uh you know um <clears throat> ideological concerns uh, into the into the mix and it's only like in the 1800s that um, sort of, you know, a lot of the popular philosophers, the popular philosophy professors in Edinburgh and places like that started saying, no, emotions are these things now. But because they are so common, so like everyone know, everyone knows what an emotion is, mm-hmm. it's almost like they're too common. Like we, we cannot be too objective with emotions and therefore 
in the attempt to define them, to say, like, this is what emotion is. This is everything that does this is emotion. Everything that does not is not. They can't be pinned down like that. They can't be uh, isolated and observed, you know, uh, dispassionately and, and clinically because they are too they're too close to us in many ways the humans trying to identify an emotion it's like it's like using your eyes to look at your own retinas so you, hmm. you can sort of in theory should be possible but it can't really be done based on the way we work they are too intertwined into our thinking and there have been attempts to define emotions you know, in a objective uh reliable robust way and that's what makes emotion research kind of so confusing because it hasn't been done yet they haven't managed to say right everyone agrees that this is what an emotion is and as a result pick all the studies into emotions they have that greater level of variability because if you think an emotion is this thing and your study shows up this is how emotions work in the brain and someone else goes no well, we think an emotion is actually this thing uses a more loose definition and actually no no see you know, this goes on the brain too and that goes on there and um the example I used in the book is like if you try to do a survey of how many pets are in uh, the country, uh, if you only define pet as hmm. dog, cat, or fish, then you can have a sort of a specific number of pets. Uh, but if you say uh, a pet is any non-human creature that lives in your house, you're going to have to include spiders and like termites and stuff, and that's going to really boost your numbers. Um, so like how you define these things is really important for researching them. But because we haven't got a you know, widely agreed unanimous definition of emotions, emotion research becomes that much harder and more confusing. So, you know, Stoics made a good start, but uh, 2,000 years later, we're still, we're still sort of scratching on to try and get anything nailed down. Sure. Yeah. Are there any characteristics that are important to point out um, that we should keep in mind as we continue to talk about emotions? Um. Yeah. Well, yes and no, and that you know, it's like I, I would say, well, these are the things we all know are emotions. But even then, you always get some exceptions to the rule. I mean, I think most, most people would agree that emotions are subconscious. Like we don't think to ourselves, "I am now going to experience anger," and so then you just suddenly trigger that emotion. Um, what I, what you do is you think of or remember something that made you angry, and that leads to you know an emotional response um but they do tend to be a lot faster than rational conscious thought that's one trait that seems to be quite uh, uniform <laughs> in that you know if something happens to you 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 tend to react emotionally before you react consciously and that's usually just a just you know but usually an artifact of how the brain works because emotions are older than conscious thought in um in the evolutionary sense so they they arrived on the scene first and in many ways Conscious human thought, you know, self-awareness, rationalization evolved from emotions or from the mechanisms that allow emotions. So emotions like sort of like the prototype thoughts, uh, but because they're, you know, they're older, they're a lot simpler in the brain and therefore they are more intertwined with like the sensory systems. And therefore when you experience something, you tend to react emotionally much faster because the brain has less to do mm. and, and, and resorts to more established systems than thinking through like, okay, this happened. And this, this means that a leads to B leads to C leads to D leads to E. And here's what I think about this. Whereas like his emotions, like this happened. Ah, and that's, um, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot faster that way. So conscious thought tends to sort of, mm rain emotions in but it doesn't usually get ahead of them it doesn't sort of say like okay this has happened i am not going to have an emotional reaction and you've got to stop it because it's already happened by this point yeah. so one thing is emotions are cognitively or neurocognitively they're a lot faster because they're simpler and more established it's amazing how complicated it is to try to define something mm -hmm. that we that we that, that feels like a universal experience yeah yeah you can argue like emotions are like scientific art in that like, mm. we all know it when we see it 
you know, you have to say to someone, right, sit down and do a 10-point list of what makes art. Few people could do it, and if they could do it, very people would have the same thing. So they are very, very slippery in that res- in that respect. Yes, yeah. One of the things that struck me in the book was uh, your discussion of how sometimes emotions or their expression, like crying, don't seem all that helpful. Um, so what mm. did you learn about why we cry? Well, crying is one of those things which I think, you know, if you if you Google like emotions, it's probably one in the top five like, image results and is someone crying because that's one of the things we sort of most often um, associate with you know, an emotional outburst or emotional expression. And it's one of the, you know, it's good in a way because it emphasizes the point like, that the Stoics made, made earlier that emotions do have a physical presence in our body. Like we think of emotions as these sort of like things which color our thoughts, you know, like the, the sort of like the, the, the garnish of our internal processes, but they do have you know, palpable physiological, physical um, outcomes and responses. So like when you are upset, you, you cry, you know, like you know, everyone does, but a lot of people do. And it's, you know, that, that, that's a genuine physical thing. Like you're leaking water from your eyes when you weren't before because of the emotion that's currently occurring within your brain and body. And I think, you know, again, so, again, it's one of those things people perhaps oversimplify it because it's such a common thing. People think, well, that's well understood, but it's not in that, like there are three different types of tears. There's, um, uh, sort of uh, re- basal tears, which is basically like the thin film of fluid which covers your eye at all times, just, you know, just to lubricate and keep it healthy. There's uh, reflex tears, the ones which when you've got something in your eye, like onion vapor or a bit of dust, will kick it out. Uh, no, this is a bit like opening the floodgates, like flush that thing out and get rid of it. Uh, but there's psychoemoto tears, which are the ones you experience when in an emotional state, and they are chemically different to the other types of tears. They have their own specific chemicals and hormones in them. Mm-hmm. So not only is your you know, emotion triggering the, uh, the, the not only is emotion triggering your tear ducts to release fluid, it's chemically altering that fluid too, and you know, to contain more oxytocin and vasopressin and things like that. And that's not why that happens. That's well, that's again another thing that's, deb- that's, that's uh, the subject of debate. Like, why why would that be helpful? Why would having oxytocin in your tears make you feel better and like the oxytocin is one that enhances emotional states and bonding mm-hmm. but you know in very small amounts through your tears it doesn't can't really get a contact high from having absorbed through the skin of your face and that's uh that's a big ask you know but it's also it's already in your brain why why does that help what is like putting it outside and letting it absorb through the skin useful one theory is that it's it is to do with like a enhancing bonding when someone's in a weak emotional state or a weak but anyway, uh, a vulnerable emotional state because uh, if someone comes to help and then you know they see the tears, they go, oh, that person is emotionally uh, in need right now. You see them and you they inhale some oxytocin from your tears and you, you know, you're more likely to be helped by this person. So that's um, a social evolutionary advantage. Uh, but you know, there's also this study to show that you know, we don't just cry when we're sad. We, some people cry when they're angry. Some mm-hmm. people cry a lot when they're, they're laughing. You know, too powerful laughing causes causes you to cry. You know, crying with laughter is a well-known thing. And these are really diverse emotional states, but they all produce a tear response in many, in, in many contexts. And you know, some argue, well, it's, it's all about the social thing. Like, you know, when we yawn, we see other people yawn with us when we see someone crying, whatever it is, we want to participate in their emotional state to help them because we're so social. Yeah, so like we think, you know, just a few drop, drops of water from your eyeballs, you wouldn't think they'd be so complex, but um, but here we are nonetheless, because emotions make everything more complex, as mm. I'm, I'm sure most people will, will be very aware of. 
Yeah, yeah. So it, it seems like at least part of the purpose is to be a signal to other people that were around. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what other signals that we're giving off, um, what other sorts of emotional signals? Well, I think the, the thing to literally show is that we are constantly broadcasting a whole diverse range of uh, emotional cues and signals, uh, almost to the extent that... Um, they can, we can have a sort of separate conversation with someone in the by emotional cues that we're not consciously aware of, uh, because you know, the the stance we have, the uh, you know the expression of our face, uh, this the general sort of body motion we have, like uh, where the way our eyes are, the pupils dilated, are they narrowed? Um, our face is just a massive, constantly changing canvas of all sorts of emotional information, and you can. You can detect this, uh, even if you're not aware of it. There's like a process called emotional contagion where you, uh, like, you know, for example, go into a funeral. You can go to a funeral of someone you don't know. Like, a lot of people go to, to, to support a friend who's lost the person uh, um, who's passed, whose funeral it is. And you can go there. You could be, you can know no one there. You're just there to support your friend. When you go to a funeral, you feel sad. It's a very sad atmosphere. And what that is is emotional contagion. Like you walk in and parts of your brain which recognize emotional cues from other people are detecting that everyone here is sad. Everyone here is very unhappy. And this is, and therefore, I will empathize. I will share this. I will, you know, that, that, that is the state of the room. So I will feel that as well. Or the classic thing where you go into a room and like, could be a couple you know, or people just argued, and you haven't witnessed any of the argument. You didn't know what happened, but you walk in and you detect a frosty atmosphere. And they're like, okay, what just happened? Because you don't know any of the actual context consciously, but your you know, subconscious, the part of your brain which detects emotional cues, are picking up on the hostility in the body language, in the tone, in the, in the in just the distance between people. Because our brains are so good at detecting emotional cues from others. Uh, when we don't have them, like we tend to struggle, which is why Zoom calls aren't quite as uh, rewarding a social interaction as a face-to-face one. Because although you know, all the objective information is being shared, uh, we're not getting the emotional cues that our brains have evolved to pick up and detect. So like online interactions can be you know, sufficient, but they're never going to be as rewarding as the face-to-face sort, because that's what we've sort of evolved to do. And our brains have a lot, of, a lot going on every time that happens. And you can even have... I say like uh, different conversations because it's, it's it's a trope of movies and you know, rom coms and stuff. But you can meet someone and you don't agree on anything. You can sort of like have completely opposing viewpoints on all matter of subjects, and your conversations, your verbal conversations, can be purely argumentative. But they can be given off cues, emotional cues that you're responding to and agree, and your body's agreeing with. Like so, they, you can find them. Okay, they're, they're saying this emotionally, and I. I'm going to react to that. So your your brain's going to be having two separate conversations. The the conscious one, which is like, I don't like this person, I'm going to argue. And the subconscious one where the emotions are going, all right, we're very in, we're very in sync here, aren't we? This is really a, really quite something. So you get those, you know, those love to hate things when people are just op- you know, objectively hostile, but actually really into each other because on an emotional level, their bodies are communicating a totally different message to the one their, their mind is uh, trying to get across. So, yeah, there are so many different types of communication based on emotion that we're all going through all the time. And some of these are and, even yeah. chemical cues, right? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, all people say pheromones, but I think the, the evidence says we humans don't have what we consider to be pheromones, um, specific chemicals which are released into the air, which uh, you know, a potential partner will react to and have you know the the arousal response um 
I think it means it would have dedicated pheromones. We don't have chemicals for doing just that. But when people cry or people sweat, even like they give off like hormones and things which we do respond to. Like uh, there's lots of uh, studies which show that if someone's scared, you take a sweat sample for them and let someone else smell it, you will the person smelling it will experience like a low level fear response themselves because they recognize that ah this is this is the chemicals people give off when they're scared you know, on a subconscious level again like you might not be consciously aware of it but your brain is going ah this is that fear stuff i'm used to smelling yeah that's uh, that's fear okay someone else is scared i should be scared too because that's how we work and um you know there's also the, you know, the oxytocin and uh, like, like women down there their swabs of sweat and men smell it becomes sort of more protective of their partners and stuff so and, and the, the tear thing like i mentioned earlier there's lots of chemical ways but it's not our it's not our main one so mm-hmm. we don't rely on them so much but we do do it you know, like, much like the beast we are you could say i suppose but uh <laughs> i think we've gone a bit but we still got the uh the old natural mechanisms at work in some level yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. So what about emotion seems innate and what about it seems to be shaped by our cultures? Yeah, that actually is a real big hot button topic, uh, subject of much debate in the emotion research field. Um, in many senses, uh, actually two that I could find. I mean, given the field of emotions is so complex and maybe other you know, other ideologies or other sort of perspectives that I haven't even considered yet. But there seems to be sort of like a, a debate between two schools of thought, uh, one of which is the um, fundamental primary emotions and one of which is the constructivism. So when it comes to the fundamental basic emotions, I think that's what they often refer to as that, is that the idea is that we have like a hardwired neurological mechanisms in our brains which produce these like five, six, seven, depends who you ask, uh, specific emotions. And uh, like the fundamental, the basic ones traditionally are anger, fear, disgust, um, happiness, sadness, and sometimes surprise, which again, that's a whole debatable one because is that an emotion or is that just a response state? You know, it's, um, it's there and gone far too quickly to be considered emotion in most people's eyes, but that's another topic for the discussion. And uh, these all came from studies uh, by Paul Ekman into facial expressions so a lot of emotion data uh, stems from what, what what our faces do when we experience emotions how do researchers so, do those uh, kinds of studies well that's the thing um that, that, that turns out that's actually a, a very important question to ask so paul ekman studies was like you, you basically you show people different facial expressions and ask them to put an emotion to this expression. And if like 10,000 people all agree that this is a face which shows anger, then that is an angry facial expression. Uh, for a long time, it was, you know, it was assumed or insisted. Uh, the, the dominant idea was that these facial expressions are learned. So we see other people do these as a very small child or a baby. And we go, okay, that's an angry person. I'm going to do that face when I'm angry because that's how we work. And you know, that was the dominant school of thought that you know, we all learn these facial expressions like we learn a language. You know, you're not born knowing you know, how to speak English. You pick it up over time. Uh, but because you know, human facial expression goes back before language, we just you know, we all have the same one, same ones. Um, but then to explore that, some studies, uh, well, Ekman particularly, went to what were believed to be tribes which had never had any sort of real human contact from the wider world. So logically, if they haven't had any contact with the outside world, then their facial expression should be different because they've had to develop new ones. And studies show that they didn't have these expressions, uh, have different expressions. So obviously, human 
facial expressions we have in emotions are innate, hardwired. And therefore, the emotions must be two, because there must be sort of specific neurological mechanisms for them. And therefore, we have these basic emotions. And that was, and in many ways remains, the dominant uh, theory uh, about how emotions work yeah. uh, to a worrying extent, in a, in a way, because more recent studies have shown that that's not actually so um, hard and fast. Uh, that's not so clear at all. It's by, by no means as clear cut as that. And uh, even if that is like, like quite complex, because uh, I think Lisa Feldman Barrett is the professor who sort of has led the, the counter to the whole basic emotion theory, the constructivism, which argues that we don't have uh, specific emotions hardwired into our brains. What we have is affect, which is like the raw material of emotion. And when we experience emotional state, we have, we experience affect. And our brains over time have learned how to sort of process and interpret that into a specific emotional state. And our facial expressions vary according to that. Uh, because I think they said, like, when you, there is no one facial expression for anger. Because if you had like a, people, actors win an Oscar, they don't have the face which it most shows the most you know, reliable source of anger. It's like, it's all nuanced, it's all complex, it's all different. And you know, people's ability to recognize the emotional the expressions it's fine if you show them a face dead on just being posed as that and give them options you know which emotion belongs to this face if you make them do it candidly you know take some photos of people you know doing their daily lives experiencing emotions as a result of what they, what's happened to them and ask people to identify those emotions they they really really struggle to do it it's, I mean, it's a lot harder that way because identifying emotions needs a lot more context than just someone's face you need to know where they are what they're doing and you know, that's become more of a you know, accepted thing. And there's also the fact that a lot of emotions we experience don't have um, a set emotional, a, a set facial expression. Like, you know, what is the facial expression for shame? What if it's, uh, you know, self-satisfied gluttony? You know, is, is that a thing? <laughs> does, that have a, does that have an expression? I don't think it does. So, um, you know, so obviously there must be other emotions going on behind the face without this being revealed so again it's become a lot more complex a lot more nuanced and debated than uh, and then originally assumed but this idea that we have set facial expressions has caught on in many ways too much because mm. there's a lot of software based on it now like facial scanning you know you see a lot in internet stuff like get a camera on they can read your facial expression and tailor adverts to what you like because you can read your feelings from your face but you can't. I mean, humans struggle to do that. Our algorithm is meant to do it accurately, is anyone's guess, but it keeps happening. And it's influencing stuff like security software and, uh, you know, like um, checks like that, which is worrying because, I mean, like if you've got a, if you've got a twitchy face, you know, if you've just got an itch or something, that means you could be you know, tagged as a potential threat. And that's mm. that's not good. That's, that's very unhelpful. Right. In your book, you mention um, the use of these emotions uh, or reading of emotions from from images at at airport security mm, i think it's called spot spot you know security potential i, I can't remember the full thing but yeah it was um it was a u.s thing um i think shortly after 9 11 which obviously makes sense to be honest but uh it might be it might be mean before then because obviously you know airline terrorism isn't exactly a new thing but yeah they spent many years and millions of dollars on developing this system by which incorporated you know, technology and human observation to identify potential terrorists and threats before they got to the point where they could be threatening. And um yeah, it just just just, just didn't work. Um because when you think about it, you know, what does a terrorist's face look like? You know, like do you think, oh, they're gonna be nervous and sweaty and anxious because they're about to commit a terrorist act. Yeah, but you know, 
A, not everyone has the same face when they're feeling like that. And B, mm-hmm. look at people who are nervous and anxious. And sweaty <laughs> and airport is, in airports. And airports are a good place to find those people because a lot of people don't like flying and you know going through security. It's a very um, stressful time in many ways. And that is something which you know, seemed to be overlooked a lot. And you know, so, yeah, this it just didn't work because it turns out humans' ability to recognize other people's emotions based on their facial expression alone isn't that good and nor should it be because we usually have a lot more information to work with right yes so emotions are incredibly complicated difficult to read from faces and yet researchers are starting to get deeper and deeper into understanding them um Mm -hmm. so to ask a very large question maybe we can just ask how would you start to answer the question of where where in our brains do emotions come from yeah, well, where do they come from? Uh, in many ways, you could say everywhere, uh, because pretty much like every facet of the brain can be influenced by emotions some way, and every facet does influence emotions in some way, shape, or form, uh, because in, like, emotions are so widely integrated into how our brains work and what they do. Um, one one reason that is a tricky question to ask is like comes back to the other thing of how do you define an emotion, but not uh, you know verbally, not linguistically, not you know in terms of the language definitions. Um, how do you, you know, isolate an emotion in terms of what it's doing in your brain? Like biologically, how do you isolate it? Like so, if you have, you know, if you've experienced anger and your face has an angry expression, is the part of your brain which makes your face do that? Is that part of the emotion, or is that just a consequence of the emotion? Or like the the thoughts you have, which are infused with anger, are they are they part of the emotion, or is it you know, is there some pure uh, like nub of emotion somewhere which is corrupt, uh, corrupting, but you know, influencing and infusing with all this, or does all this count as part of the emotion itself, the emotional expression? In some ways, like trying to, uh, you know, trying to isolate where emotion happens in the brain, it's sort of like you know, dissecting a joke to find which bit has the humor. Hmm. It's like you, know, you take you take all the words apart. Which word is the funny word? No, it, it, it doesn't quite work like that. It's actually, um, you know. You need it all in order to make any sense of it. If you take it apart, then it suddenly not doesn't work anymore. But you know there have been um, general attempts to to narrow down uh, where emotions are in the brain. For a long time, it was just assumed that it all comes from the limbic system, which is the mid layer of the brain, roughly between like the reptile brain, the fundamental brainstem type stuff, and the reflexes, and uh, the cortex, the human brain, or the thinking, memories, complex sense of perception. So between that, you have your uh, limbic slash mammal brain, because it's like complex, more complex than reptiles, but not quite human standard yet. And he, uh, emotions happen there, and all other subconscious stuff. But, uh, you know, Again, as ever, over time, they've realized, oh, no, actually, this clear boundary is nowhere near as uh, uh, you know, realistic as we, we'd hoped. You know, the brain does a lot more overlap, a lot more confusing things like that. Um, there's lots of different networks um, attributed to motions, but they, they, you know, they, they stretch from your prefrontal cortex, which is right in the, you know, right behind your eyeballs, the most thinky part of the brain. Uh, and that goes carries on down to somewhere like the cerebellum and like the part of the brainstem, like your, your rafe nucleus, where, or things like uh, where in the brainstem, where the, the laughter reflex happens. Like laughing is a very emotional reaction, uh, but it takes place like in countless different parts of the brain. Um, 
some parts of the brain are uh, very, very heavily linked to emotion. So like there's the anterior cingulate cortex, which seems to be where like emotions and conscious thought divide a lot. And so there's more overlap than we thought, but they, they seem to sort of intertwine quite well there. Um, the insular cortex, which seems to be heavily implicated in disgust. And the amygdala is probably the go-to for emotional reaction. So it was most normally associated with fear, but um, and still is. It's, a very, you know, it's very important for the fear response, but now it's got a lot more to it. It's almost, almost like a hub of the emotional system. So it, you know, it, 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 it inserts the emotional element of memories. So if you remember something with an emotional complex, there was the... It was the amygdala which did that, and it also helps uh, determine which emotion is relevant in a specific social situation. So, like, for uh, example, if you come home and like uh, there's a naked stranger in your bedroom, you go, "That's terrifying. I don't want that." But if you're in a, you go into like a, a sauna, and there's a naked stranger there, you're Scandinavian. You're like, That's perfectly normal. Like, you, you don't have a you know, don't have a strong emotional reaction to that because you know the context, and sure. it's the amygdala which makes that decision. So. Yeah, lots of the brain does lots of emotions. Um, once we can pin down what exactly they are, maybe we'll have a bit more of a better idea which bit of the brain is responsible for them. But uh, mm. so far, work in progress. Okay. And um, what do what have um, what has the study of emotions revealed about cognition? I think it's um, one take home message for me from all this from the studies I had was that you know it's sort of widely assumed that emotion is uh, like the poorer relation of cognition and you, you get it online a lot now um in many places but the people who say like i don't i don't make decisions based on emotion i just use rational thought um i know like which is pure cognition in, in the strictest sense but one thing it's i think is kind of it's impossible to get away from now based on anything i've uncovered i would say is that you can't you can't separate rational cognitive thought from emotion they are too heavily intertwined and you can't really have one without the other um because uh you know it often gets quite philosophical um uh dr richard firth godbeer he's uh someone i consult a lot he's a, a historian of emotions but he has a good example of um you know Someone else I included in the book, uh, Brent Spiner, data from Star Trek, which I was you know, quite happy to get a connection with him. But you know, he, you know, data comes up a lot uh, as a concept because he's like the artificial he, artificial individual who doesn't have emotions. He's just for pure reason. And you know, it's it's interesting character. It's very 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 well loved and very uh, much uh, much admired. But in the real world, uh, he would have but more tricky time of it because if data the android or someone like him went into an ice cream shop and had to choose a flavor of ice cream how would they do it you know, if they don't eat there's no sort of um you know nutritional requirement and they're all got the same sort of calorific intake and all, all the stats are balanced you have to make a decision based on emotion and if you don't have emotions you can't do that mm-hmm. and you know, but also you know i think rational thought is great it's a it's an incredible human achievement in the evolutionary sense but it's slow it's uh, in terms of the we're day day to day, second by second interactions. We can't afford to spend, you know, all the time required to rationally think through every single possible decision we make. We don't have the brain power for it, and we don't have the capacity, the bandwidth. So emotions guide our decisions a lot more. Like you know, even if it's just mundane, like do I want that? No, I don't want that. It's your emotion saying ignore, you know, move on, don't don't worry about it. Uh, so we depend on them a lot more than we perhaps realise because they're doing all like the sort of general uh, background stuff while our precious conscious thought is you know, dedicated to something more interesting to us and the idea that we can you know, 
take away emotion to separate them is like it would be di- really damaging to do that we wouldn't be able to function and even when you think about things like you know i want to think about this rationally objectively thinking rationally using logic we like to do that and if we like to do that that means we are having an emotional reaction to it so with emotions make us want to be rational you know in the most you know, at, at the very you know, most fundamental level because there's no sort of reason to be rational if you don't have any emotional response to it. Like I mentioned, like the idea of scientists as being uh, non-emotional people, because in many ways you have to keep emotion out of science as best you can, because you can't afford to uh, corrupt the data or ruin your research by getting emotionally invested in a certain outcome. But if you look at uh, the world of science and the actual science as a career, you know it is uncertain. It's not the best paid career. It's uh, very demanding. It's going to be exhausting. It's uh, it involves a lot of travel or uh, just being uprooted constantly. You can only have three grants at a time, and you know, it's you know, it is a demanding and often unrewarding career because you can spend like 10 years researching something and you don't get the result you want you have to start again so the only reason scientists would exist people want to do science is because they they love it and if they love it that means they have an emotional investment in it so the idea that you can be completely rational um is is not correct you can't do that that just fundamentally goes against how we operate as a species yeah so there are emotional aspects to all sorts of things even if we don't see them at the forefront Hmm. Um, so let's talk about negative emotions a bit. So in your mm-hmm. book, you share that people often seek out experiences that produce negative emotions, such as watching scary movies or reading sad books. Why do they do that? What is the purpose? Yeah, that was something that baffled me. It seemed very sort of contradictory. They're like These emotions are what we experience when something bad happens. There you go. We try to avoid them. So the existence of uh, entertainment formats which actively seek out and try to produce them was illogical from my you know, naive perspective perhaps and you know, I even bemoan the fact I used to do a lot of comedy stuff and uh, you get maybe like once every 20 years because someone wins an Oscar for doing comedy but oh, if they make people cry then oh this bang's nailed on then isn't it so um, no, it's a, if anything you know, negative emotions are prioritised you know, like uh, given more weight in the, the entertainment world and you know, to look into it, I think, oh, I think it's widely agreed that um, it's because this is a healthy thing to do. Uh, for all, like you know, I might complain about the you know, the popularity of misery memoirs, which are just like someone's horrible story from start to finish, just nothing but tragedy in each page. What it does is it, uh, you know, I mentioned that the brain likes to prefers to avoid negative experiences, but because. Uh, the way we process emotions is fundamentally tied in with the process whereby we experience them. So you can't sort of deal with emotions without feeling them. That's just not how our brain works. So by allowing us to feel certain emotions, negative ones particularly, in a safe, controlled state, our brain seems to respond very well to that because it's almost like it's almost like taking your brain to the gym in the emotional sense. Like you're doing all this exercise. It may be, you know, unpleasant in the moment, but afterwards you feel better because like, oh, good. I have worked the systems which I need to be operational for when this does happen in real life. Uh, when when the world throws me a curveball and I get you know, knocked down and I have a negative emotional state. By engaging in these uh, negative emotion-inducing entertainments, your brain has more experience with dealing with them and it's a common uh, it's a common observation and it's very valid scientifically that people who listen to heavy metal are invariably like nice people who are quite relaxed 
you know, it, uh, someone saying, in spite of this really angry, furious music they listen to. No, it's because of, because their brains are regularly put into a really heightened, angry, aroused state. Uh, in, but as a form of entertainment. So they can, they listen to like a heavy metal gig for like an hour and sort of the screaming and head banging or whatever. As it, shocking to know, but I'm not into heavy metal, so I don't know what goes on there, but I've got a sort of stereotypical view of it. But, um, but they, you know, they, they do go through this emotional state of listening to this pumping, angry, frantic music. And when it's over, their brain's done that. It was totally safe. They could leave anytime they wanted. It wasn't directed at them particularly. Like nothing happened to them. They just had a cathartic time. So like the brain of a heavy metal fan has a lot more experience at dealing with anger and therefore they aren't as angry people. And that's generally like the observation, which seems to hold true based on the, based on the literature. Same thing with them. Someone's just uh, constantly reading sad books or watching weepies and stuff. They, when something sad happens to them, they may be more empathetic. They may be more, uh, they may be better placed to deal with it because their brains have done the work in, uh, you know, going through that emotional state and and come out the other side of it. And so somehow, you shut yourself, yeah. Oh, and somehow well. people are able to, or somehow the brain is able to process these things so they don't feel like a trauma. Um, how is that? Yeah. 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 Because when it's, um, when it's an entertainment format, like a book or a film or a TV show, you remain in control for one thing. So you can say, right, I'm experiencing this emotion, but if I want to stop, I can just turn it off and just walk out, leave the room, put the book in the freezer, like in friends, whatever it is. And that means okay, you, you, tend, you have the emotional experience, but you are entirely on your terms. And it's not about you. Like It doesn't mean something bad has happened to you. You know if something bad has happened to someone else. Uh, but that you, know, you can feel empathy. You can feel sad for them. And then characters in this book might not even exist. But you can, you can sort of, your brain can simulate this whole thing. So you don't get traumatized because it's not, it doesn't affect you directly or tangibly. It's, uh, you know, it's almost like one step removed. Mm-hmm. So when things do affect you um, directly, personally, those are harder to deal with, particularly if you haven't done any practice at uh, dealing with these emotional states. So, again, it affects men more than women a lot because you know, culturally, men are meant to be stoic and uh, strong and powerful and mustn't show emotions, mustn't feel anything apart from anger because that involves punching. And that's not, you know, that's not a healthy way to be because our brains don't work like that. Men, male brains have just as many emotional facilities as female brains, right? Sort of be a bit different in terms of how we express them or how we uh, perceive them. But we have a lot of emotions up there and like putting a chokehold on them, trying to keep them down and never, ever let them out is, you know, it's not a good long-term strategy. It does mess up your mental health, your, your well-being. And it is, you know, it's an unhealthy way to live. Hmm. In your book, I also found the discussion of stage fright super interesting. Uh, what does stage fright hmm. tell us about our emotional reactions to dangers that don't exist? Well, it's one of those things which um, sort of gives light to the fact that emotions are always illogical and consciousness is always logical and rational. Um, because if you are, no, your emotions necessarily, wouldn't necessarily lead to stage fright because your emotions are reactive. They, they don't involve a lot of you know, planning ahead and stuff. So the emotions we have when it comes to stage fright uh, almost always stem from our conscious brains, like our rational thoughts. Because there's no actual danger involved in stage fright or, or in sort of performing on stage. Uh, there's no physical risk. You know, you don't, unless it's a particularly rough gig, no one's going to storm the stage and beat you senseless. Uh, even if you are awful and terrible, you know, but, um, but you know, because we're such social creatures, we really value the approval of others. And uh, that's why, that's where the risk comes in. You go on stage and do something, perform something, display your abilities, your ways, your talent, your creation to other people for their approval. Uh, if you get it, 
you feel really good. Obviously, you've got the approval of loads of people. Like they have said, that thing you did is great. We like that. And it's at the most fundamental level. Human brains love that. Whereas you know, the risk is they go, no, we don't like that. You're you're not a good person. We did we disapprove. And that really can you know, do a number on us. The whole phrase, sticks and stones, break my bones, names never hurt me, is not correct. Criticism causes like a pain reaction in the brain. It's a psychological, not a physical pain, but it's definitely serious discomfort. Uh, but that's all stuff which is, comes from our conscious mind. Because when we, you know, before we've gone on stage, nothing has happened. Nothing can happen. We haven't done anything yet. So our emotions wouldn't necessarily react to that. You know, on the most basic level, we're just perceiving the background of a stage. It's our conscious mind which is saying, okay, we're, we're going to go out there and people are going to look at us. Loads of people are going to look at us and then they, we're going to do that thing. And they might not like it. If they don't like it, we'll be embarrassed. We'll feel awful. So all these emotions are being churned up by your conscious mind or indirectly by your conscious mind because it's creating all these scenarios which your, your emotions by themselves wouldn't be doing. So it's a good example of how you know, the emotions just mind its own business and it's the conscious brain which is causing the problem here because they're so intertwined they're so interlinked uh but it's not it's not the emotions which are really at fault here it's the it's your rational thought which is being too analytical too too predictive too uh pessimistic and causing you know unpleasant emotional responses sure yeah so one of the things that came up for you as you were processing your father's death and writing this book was that uh, in these very emotional times, we can have emotion-laced dreams and particularly nightmares. Um, why do our brains conjure these vivid emotional landscapes while we're sleeping? Yeah, that was something which came up a lot <clears throat> because obviously I wasn't the only person going through hard times during pandemic and lockdown. And you, you, you observe all the uh, online discussions. It seemed like people having weird dreams was a recurring problem for a lot of people during, you know, during the height of lockdown. And again, what dreams mean, what they are, that's something a lot of people are interested in. Um, so it's an interesting sort of, <laughs> sort of contradiction that people are really interested in dreams, but no one will say about anyone's specific dream because that's boring, which is <laughs> just how it works. But it, it, that's, it seems to be what it is. So based on the, the evidence that I've come across, and I think the general consensus is that when we dream, it's essentially our brain... Uh, sort of sorting out, filing and processing all our new memories and mean, like doing a lot of maintenance on the memory system. So you know, you're attaching new memories to old memories, integrating them into our you know, basic mental state, um, forming up the new connections, <coughs> getting rid of older ones. So it's like it's a lot of busy work. The brain's basically filing away all the new stuff it's got from that day and putting it in with the existing stuff. So it's why dreams can be such weird combinations of new things and old things and like random elements from the past and you know, things happening, but they're in no particular order, uh, no logical order. So your, your dreams are both really weird, but also very familiar because they're all memories, like that all things already exist in your brain. So you think, yeah, this is totally normal. I'm just upside down on the moon and that's exactly where I should be. You know, my mother's there, she can fly now. And you know, it, these are all things that your brain, your brain just coughs up because it's connecting different memories together. And uh, they don't have to make logical sense. But, you know, what counts as an individual element of a memory and you know, it's not just one blob of scenes, you know, like one particular episode. Uh, it's all the individual distinct components of that, like you know, the certain, someone's certain face, someone's uh, characteristic or a certain uh, sight or certain shape, uh, but also a certain emotion. You know, an emotional experience can be one specific element of a memory. And you know, some things trigger you know, other memories, and, and those memories have their own emotional connections too, which are triggered in turn. So... Um, 
what I focused on in the book was nightmares. Obviously, those are, if anything, the most um, the stark types of dream. And they seem the most like illogical. Like, why would your brain want to terrify you while you're sleeping or wake you up? That seems counterproductive. And in many ways, it is. Mm. But uh, it's part of the existing system for processing and dealing with emotions. So when we experience something uh, particularly traumatic or particularly frightening, that means a big sort of strong emotional experience is logged in the brain's memory. But because of the way memories and emotions work, <clears throat> they can keep triggering the same feeling if it's particularly vivid. You know, you can't, like, it's like poking a tooth, you can't stop thinking about it. That's the big problem with PTSD, that mm. the memory was so traumatic, it keeps, you know, almost by definition, it keeps triggering itself. You know, you can't, can't move past it because you keep, keep re-experiencing it. So when we're asleep, uh, with stuff like this, what the brain's trying to do, it seems, is to take that uh, the big lump of fear from this new memory, which keeps triggering it, and try to sort of dilute it by attaching it to other memories and to other experiences, which can then sort of, I uh, know, so it's not so fundamentally linked to this one experience, this one trauma. Which is why, like, if you have, like, work stress building up, you know, mm. uh, you keep thinking about work stress, you keep having the stress reaction. When you sleep, you might have a stressful dream, which involves being, un- being in the sea or, like, losing your teeth is a common one. Like, these are things which stress you out, but they're a different source of stress from what's actually causing the current stress. So your brain's going, right, if it's connected to this, this as well, it'll diffuse the system better. I'll be able to better integrate it. I can trigger it more safely. Because I can trigger that feeling without triggering the memory which created it which causes the whole trauma response but sometimes it seems the brain system to do that does get overwhelmed sometimes we take in such a strong emotion that it's sort of by activating it it builds up too much and then you sort of have the fear response and then you wake up and you're traumatized you have night terrors and things so over time hopefully that'll sort of stop happening you'll it'll fade so your brain slowly but surely makes it better integrated into the system but you know, this is also. But it, it takes time, and doesn't necessarily, and it doesn't necessarily work. Which is why, like chronic nightmares or like the onset of nightmares, can be a strong indicator of like a decline in mental health or you know the, uh, an, imminent, an, an imminent relapse or stuff like that. So yeah, nightmares and mental health are really quite uh, strongly correlated for for that reason. Hmm. We've talked a bit about where emotions come from in the brain, but you mentioned in your book that uh, emotions also seem to arise from the body. Uh, you mentioned the gut-brain axis. Can you tell me a bit about that? Hmm. Yeah, gut-brain axis um, is like one of the new frontiers in uh, healthcare and like medical science understanding. It's, uh, it's obviously, I think people have long known that you can influence how you feel via your digestive system. Like you eat something, you feel better, you're hungry, you're angry, and things like that. But you know, not, not just a case of, I am hungry, therefore I'm not happy, and therefore I eat some food, and therefore I am happy again. It's, um, it seems a lot more complex and um, uh, you know, direct than that. Uh, but that does happen. Obviously, you put some food in your system, new chemicals enter your body, and your body reacts, and your brain reacts that way. But there does seem to be a more direct connection, like the um, the vagus nerve, uh, which is like the cranial nerve, which stems from the brain and controls the upper body, mostly the face. But the the vagus nerve links the brain to all the other organs in your body. It goes right through your body, and like it's it's how your brain gets information from these organs. And the digestive system is particularly complex. I mean, it's got it's got its own. It's got its own nervous system, the enteric nervous system, which is often described as the second brain. It's so complex and so, uh, you know, often independent. But, you know, the 
the condition of our body is dictated strongly by our digestive system, like all the, the gut bacteria we have is a big factor in how we feel, our general health and what we're eating and how hungry on the hormones it secretes. So if there's some problem with your, you know, your, your digestion, um, although we'll feel that in other ways, uh, that it communicates directly with the vagus nerve and tells the brain something's wrong with the gut and uh, at, a, at a very, very, very fundamental level, way below consciousness. And you can feel sort of bad. You feel like your emotions go, oh, something's up, something's up. And then you feel sort of lethargic. You feel nervous. You feel like unhappy. You feel grumpy, whatever it is, mm-hmm. because there's something going on in your gut, which your brain is picking up on, but you're not consciously aware of it. And yeah, so that's just one way in which the gut brain axis has a big impact on on our health or well-being mm. and if it happens for too long you, you get to things like mental health issues because your your gut isn't um isn't doing what it should your brain's aware of that but we aren't in mm. a strange way yeah and and that brings us to so your book presents just a trove of research on emotions <laughs> and yet uh it occurs to me that there are things that we still have yet to learn what are some of the remaining mysteries uh some of the large remaining mysteries in in the field of emotion research Oh well, there's a there's a hole in the bottom. Um, like I say, like what what is an emotion? Like, can you define it as one specific thing, one specific process? Can it be narrowed down to this particular suite of neurological actions, or does it have to be? You have to incorporate the whole wider thing. So th- th- these are basic questions we still haven't been answered. Um, if we answer that, then we might have a better idea of you know, how to define them verbally with with words so you know, these are things which uh, you know still need to be answered and after being looked into um i think uh you know the impact of emotions on mental health and vice versa i think there's a lot to be said there uh like i think I'm a, a sort of a bit of hyperbole in the book but not too far off as you know if we could somehow understand exactly how emotions work in the brain that could be a uh, revolution for mental health care just like discovery of the germs was for physical health care and then like okay so now we know this now we know how they act how what they what they do how they affect us we can do something about it so there's there's so much stuff to still be uncovered there and i think uh, i think the interesting way is going to be the, the mental health side of it in that it's like this emotional system is clearly not working right now hence we've got depression hence we've got anxiety why isn't it working? What can we do about that? We have neurological mechanisms and neurological theories for that, but to pin it down and say, okay, this is the emotional state that's happening here. We know how emotions work. We know what the, and what's going on in the brain when we experience this. What's going wrong in that process to lead to this bit? And how do we do something about that? So, yeah, there's still so much stuff that can be and should be and hopefully will be um, discovered and found and uncovered uh, in the brain uh, about emotions. Um, so, yeah, long way to go before we've got a full understanding yet. Yeah. And in reflecting on your book, uh, tell me about how recording your emotions profoundly changed you in ways that you didn't expect. Yeah, I mean, it's changed me in many ways. Um, I will say it was like a metaphorical lifesaver because like, I was in such a bad place, such a dark place. Um and I had no outlet. I had no way to you know, process this. I had none of the, like I said, none of the traditional outlets for grief, the traditional mourning processes which people rely on. All I had was my ability to write things down. And I think doing so kept me back from the edge. As it were. I didn't have any, uh, well, thus far, I haven't had any sort of like collapses or mental breakdowns. So I never lost the ability to function. Because I had this ability to look at what was happening to me and saying, 
this is what's going on. Why is this happening? Okay, well, now that I know, you know, it's not stopped it happening, but I feel slightly better. That, okay, I'm not as panicked. It's not as uncertain. I think before uh, before this, like I've likened my experience writing this book to, yes, I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a, you know, I'm a qualified neuroscientist. I know lots about how the brain works. So you'd think that would uh, be protective about you know, going through stuff like this. But I learned that ultimately it's like, you know, being a neuroscientist and going through an experience like this is like being a trained mechanic uh, in a car on the freeway with no brakes. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know what the problem is, but I'm still, I'm still, I'm still in a very bad situation right now. Like I, <laughs> that doesn't help my knowledge. Doesn't really help stop it. It doesn't. I, I know what's gone wrong, and I've just got to you know grab the wheel and hope that I get through this properly. Like I can, maybe I can use my knowledge to steer a certain way or like increase the odds of getting out there safely but it, you still got to go through it it's still like the same brain that you have this knowledge with is still the same brain which is experiencing this problem and it's kind of hard to separate the two but yeah i think it's made me a more empathetic person definitely not that i was ever actively not before but you know, i used to say i can't comment on depression or mental health problems because i've never gone through something like that but now i have gone through a trauma and i feel a bit more able to say yeah I know what that's like. I know what you're going through, and I can totally sympathize because I did this. Um, and it's, it's been really helpful, and it certainly stopped me downplaying or ignoring the emotional component of things. If anything, it's, I've sort of started prioritizing a bit more because you can be as objective as you want about a certain problem, but if the problem is how people deal with something or how they're perceiving things, emotions are going to be a massive, massive part of that. And ignoring that doesn't do anyone any favors. So yes, it really has fundamentally changed me in many different ways, but I'm still sort of unpacking. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for sharing that experience in your book, sharing the research that you've done and talking with me today, Dean. No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated. If you'd like to learn more about Dean Burnett, this book or his previous ones, we've linked to his website at scienceforthepeople.ca. On our page, you'll also find links to the show on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe, or leave a review. If you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting the show by donating through our Patreon page. I hope this conversation has inspired you, as it has me, to pay a little more attention to emotions. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 